Well, if this is your, uh, among one of your first times here, if you're new or whatever, my name is Cameron. I probably should have said that before. Uh, my name is Cameron. I'm the pastor here at Conduit. We're glad you're here. Um, we'll tell you that in our, we are in the middle of, um, we're in the middle of a sermon series that uh, is in really intentional in regards to the, the season of life that we're in right now. Um, you know, as we, as we consider what's going to happen in November, right? Um, you know there's election in November? Anyone tell you? Anyone made you aware of that, right? And, and, and it seems like it's real, um, it's been, it's been, more obvious than normal, right, that, that people have uh, opinions on the election and the candidates and the political atmosphere and the issues and whatever. And um, this is not, a, this is not a, a, a sermon that tells you one way or another, this way or that way, or going to get into the political um, issues at all, although it kind of does strike at the heart of some of those. But the reality is is that those of us who follow Jesus, those of us who consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus Christ, we often have to come to some kind of conclusion about, um, about what kingdom we represent and are a part of. And we're going to talk a little bit about how Jesus did that um, this morning. Maybe one of the most famous parts of Jesus' teaching um, is found in Matthew chapter 5. This is called the Sermon on the Mount, we know it as, and it's kind of this big block of teaching that uh, we're using here at Conduit to develop what we're, for lack of a better term, term calling a, like a Jesus ethic of life, right? Like when we, when we think about things, when we think about our relationship with others, when we think about how we're going to interact with the world, when we think about how we're going to think about topics that may be important in, I don't know, an election, or even maybe even more specific about how we are going to interact with or have relationship with other people in the midst of a period of time where everyone seems to just be biting at each other and arguing with each other, tearing each other down and making sport out of saying how stupid someone is because they believe this or think this or support them or support them. Like, does the Jesus-centered ethic of life have anything to say at all about that? About the way in which we treat each other about how we think about important issues in life or in the church or even in politics. And certainly, while not every issue has a direct corollary to a political position or idea, I think we can make some applications that help us to understand that if we are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that we have both a responsibility but also a call uh, to represent the kingdom of which he is a king of. And that's the kingdom of heaven primarily. Not primarily, totally. 
So we're going to open up uh, this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. This is the, kind of the, just the next section of our, of our scripture. And what is perhaps one of the most famous, I mean, like, in terms of Jesus' teaching, it probably doesn't get any more famous than this. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 38, Jesus says this. He says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, Jesus does has this pattern through much of his teaching where he takes something that is commonplace, that is normal, that is practiced along a, uh, amongst a wide group of people, and he says something like, you have heard that it was said, or essentially, you have practiced X, or you understand it as such, but I tell you, thus and so, or like this, or you've misunderstood it, or you may be following the, the letter of the law, but you're missing the spirit of the law. Jesus does that about things like um, murder and hate. We talked about that, about adultery, um, about revenge, like we're seeing here, about love, like we're going to talk about next week. Um, and so the, the, the question now becomes, is like, what is Jesus getting to when it comes to like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Where did this idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, exist somewhere in the world in which he was living in? And, and, and what, did it, what did it mean? Well, it absolutely did exist. It comes both from some traditions in Judaism, but also was adopted in a, a Roman form of government. Now, in order to understand some of the things that Jesus says, and really some of the things that we find in the Bible, we have to nuance what we're reading, what we're hearing, the same way that we nuance many of the things that, that we talk about and use today. For instance, you and I will say things all of the time that are literal, right? They literally mean the things that we're saying. But then we'll also use symbolic language, We'll use language that is, um, I guess the word is hyperbolic, right? Or use as hyperbole, exaggeration for uh, an effect. We make a, a big statement, but everyone knows it's just a big statement. We're just trying to get a point across. Like when we walk in a room and say, oh, this was the worst morning ever, right? Probably isn't the worst morning ever, but our point was made that it was a really bad morning. Right? That things didn't go well. We see this in the way that Jesus communicates all the time. You and I communicate it like this, but like for instance, when he says something akin to, hey, if your hand causes you to sin, then do what? Chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, then what? Pluck it out, right? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm going to bank on the fact that Jesus was talking symbolically here 
or maybe, maybe hyperbolically, right? So, so that all of us are not walking around with no hands and no eyes, but we're actually just understanding that what Jesus is saying here is like, hey, in the midst of sin, it's okay to go to extreme lengths to pluck sin out of your lives. And so maybe we begin to understand why even Jesus uses phrases like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or turn the other cheek, or if you turn the left cheek, turn him the right cheek also, or if they want to go one mile uh, with you, go two with him instead. That There may be an aspect here where Jesus is using hyperbole to communicate, right, some things. Some exaggeration to communicate some lessons. But what could those lessons possibly be? Well, if we go back to the actual like, historical usage of the idea of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, we understand that this was not a literal statement. It was symbolic of something. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. It was not literal. It wasn't mean like, hey, bro plucked out my eye, so don't worry, I got one of his. Or, he grabbed my tooth, so I <laughs> got your tooth as well. As if like there was a literal one-to-one, if someone took your tooth, you could take their tooth. It was symbolic of something much more foundational, and that foundational thing was this, is that, is that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was a symbolic way to communicate that we, that as a, um, as a people, we are to limit over-retaliation in the midst of getting justice for when something has been done wrong to us. So it was meant to communicate that, hey, if someone poked out your eye, you can't cut off their arm. The most you can do is the same thing, right? That was your right in this system of justice was to keep the scales of justice balanced. What was done to you could only be done back to someone else. Because what is the, what is the natural proclivity of the human heart? I mean, I don't know about you, right? But if someone steps on my toe... I want to smash their face. Right? The, the natural orientation of the heart, right, is not to weight the scales of justice evenly when we are done wrong or when pain has been caused to us. Our natural reaction is almost always to react in such a way that the scales are wickedly imbalanced in our favor, right? You take my eye, I'm going to take your whole face. And so a measure of like, hold your horses, bro, was like, hey, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So when Jesus approaches this statement, this idea that injustice done to you could only, be, um, could only be met with the same level of pain, the same level of suffering, 
the same level of loss when you are trying to get justice, right? Um, he, he takes something that is normal. He takes something that everyone probably had some idea about, had some form of like, yeah, okay, that makes good sense. We want to keep things even. We want to keep things fair. We want to keep things just. And he takes it in a completely different direction than what is normal for you and I. Not only um, not what is normal, but what is on an extreme in another direction. Jesus kind of rhetorically in this whole scenario, when someone says, you might have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go to one mile, go with him too. What does Jesus say here? I feel like Jesus is kind of rhetorically saying this. He says, what if, what if, what if instead of invoking what may be your right, what may be you have every right to have as well because the scales of justice might, you know, they have to be even, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What if, instead of demanding that your rights be recognized for justice when something is done wrong to you, when you endure pain, when you endure suffering, when you endure unfortunate consequences at the hands of someone else, what if instead of seeking justice even on an equal scale, you go in the completely opposite direction and, and by doing so, actually communicate a much more significant message in your vacating demand for justice. What, what would the world possibly look like if instead of us all clamoring that our rights be respected, right? That justice be served, that we get what we are due, we go in the complete opposite way. What would that shift in attitude? What would that shift in dialogue? What would that shift in relationship do to the spiritual temperature of a place? See, we're all Americans. Because I think we're all Americans. We're, we're all Americans, right? The thing, one of the things that Americans hold most dear is our rights. We have rights. And 
I, I demand to exercise my right whenever I want to because it's my right. You're right. You're correct. You do, as a citizen of the United States of America, have rights. I am so thankful for those rights. <laughs> so grateful for those rights. But understand this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not primarily a citizen of the United States. You are primarily a citizen of heaven. You, are a pri you, you primarily, right, do not fall under the rule, the leadership, the lordship of the President of the United States, of Congress, of any governmental leader, you fall primarily under the lordship and leadership of the, of the king whose kingdom you belong to. And Jesus is the king of heaven. And the way in which Jesus calls those under his lordship to act in the face of injustice is much different. Is much different. In fact, some would say completely opposite. And I think what we're going to see here in a moment is that Jesus had an opportunity to stand up for his rights as the as the, the, the king of heaven, to stand up for his rights as the one who could call down 12 legions of angels at his defense when injustice was being done to him. But who willingly, who willingly laid aside, vacated every right that he had because there was something more important than him just winning the argument, him just winning the battle, him having his rights met. You see, there. This is the kind of one of the major personal pain points of a pastor, how about that alliteration, is, is that, well, like, for instance, I'll, I'll stand up here and I'll, I'll preach about like the danger of unrighteous anger or something like that, right? We use the scripture to talk about anger and then um, I'll, I'll go out from this place and then one of you will see me get um, angry in an unjust matter, in an unrighteous matter and you'll be like, See you over there. What about that, Pastor? And what I say is, yeah, I mean, like guilty as charged, right? Because there's always this sense of what we know to be true up here and what God is continuing to do and sanctify in our hearts and then into our lives, right? And there always is this little bit of gap that God is making up and that our obedience is trying to catch us up what our head knows to what God desires us to do. Sometimes that gap is really big. Sometimes that gap is really small, but it's almost always there. And so what I want to do now, in a moment where Jesus is like, hey, how about you just turn the other cheek? I know that you earned that because eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But how about when someone says, hey, would you go one mile with me? You just go two instead. Or if someone wants to like rip your cloak out of your hands, uh, I don't know, what about your tunic too? 
I'm going to be like, well, Jesus, um, did you do that? I mean, did you model that, Jesus? Because um, if you didn't do it, then you don't really know how hard it is. And it's really hard. So until you show me some examples, Jesus, or Pastor Cameron, that Jesus didn't just say these things, but he actually modeled them in his own life, I'm going to have to go ahead and keep demanding that my rights be realized. And I've got great news for you. Um, Jesus didn't just say these things. He modeled them to the nth degree. I mean, he, he modeled them all the way up to the point of his death. I mean, all the way up into the point where his very physical life was taken from him, he laid aside what was his right in order to accomplish or communicate something much more spiritually significant than him exercising his rights would have been. So we're going to talk, we're going to look at a few of those, okay? So we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to flip ahead a few chapters to Matthew chapter 26. So at the end of Jesus' life, obviously, um, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas, one of his closest followers, or a follower of him, one of his disciples, um, you know, the backstory, um, betrayed him for a small sum of money, and now they were coming, the, the mob was coming into the garden to surprise Jesus, ha-ha, uh, arrest him, and how is Jesus going to react to such an unjust, unfair surprise attack? Verse 50 in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. And then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. That is the most American statement I have ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> right? Like, bro, come at these hands, right? Seems normal, right? Well, I'm attacked. You're coming at me. And, and you can't. Because rights and stuff, and I have the right to defend myself, and maybe true in some instances, right? But there was something deeper going on here. We see, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Verse 53, do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put a disposal uh, put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Did Jesus, in this moment, have the ability to command justice on his behalf? Absolutely. Right? It was not, it was not for lack of ability. It was not for lack of authority. Well, Jesus was just kind of like a pacifist and just really nice. And no, we don't really believe that. No. What, because, because Jesus had at his command and at his disposal um, the, the totality of the armies of heaven and, and could, without 
any effort whatsoever. Call them to his aid in a moment. And not just earn, but take justice for him. Why? Because of who he was. He could. In similar fashion, um, that was in Matthew, but in the Gospel of John, the end of the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 18, Jesus, after he was arrested, was taken to uh, a guy named Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the time, of the area of Jerusalem that Jesus was in. And the Jews, the ones who had arrested Jesus, had brought Jesus to Pilate uh, to give a pronouncement of whether or not they could um, crucify Jesus or not. And so Jesus was meeting before Pilate, and this was the conversation that happened. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. This is John chapter 18, verse 35. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And Jesus said, My kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is from another place. What Jesus says here to Pilate, he's like, look, if I were operating under the principles of this kingdom here and this world, right, I definitively have enough followers that they could fight against my arrest. They could storm the castle, so to speak. They could, they could liberate me from this unjust arrest. However, my kingdom does not deal in the same types of principles that this kingdom deals with. My kingdom is not of this world, and so we do not use the ways of this world. We use a, another way, a principle of heaven. Jesus is essentially describing here the difference in response to someone who demands that their rights be honored and who is subservient to a kingdom that is not of this world. Now those are examples from Jesus' own mouth of the way in which he would forego the use of authority, the, the, the use of like justice that he could get for himself, but laid it aside for something completely different and for obviously something bigger and more lofty than the just pursuit of his, the exercise of his rights. But Peter, who is arguably the person that was closest to Jesus while he was here on earth, like Peter the, the, the disciple Peter, uh, he, had, he wrote some things later in his life reflecting on the life of Jesus. We have them in these epistles called First and Second Peter in our, in our Bibles. And we're going to look at one of the things that he said about the way that Jesus handled when, when he was unjustly persecuted or attacked. What was, what was the way in which Jesus interacted with the people around him? 
when he was unjustly attacked? What is the way? Why, what are the reasons that he did so? And what was the view? What was the perspective of Jesus' actions in the eyes of the Father? So if we go to 1 Peter um, chapter 2, if you don't know where 1 Peter is, I'm going to flip to the back of your Bible, all the way to the back, and then go back to the left, and you'll eventually find it pretty quick. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, starting at verse 19, okay? For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of, of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Basically what he's saying is, hey look, if you deserve it, don't don't act like some super righteous martyr because you're under suffering or persecution, right? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Who wants to be commendable before God? I want to be commendable before God. When the word says this is commendable before God, I want to stand in that spot. I don't know about y'all. But I, I want to be in a place where, where my actions where the things that I have done or the things that I have chosen not to do puts me in a place of commendation before God. Not condemnation. Verse 21. Listen, followers of Jesus. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Yet when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, the idea that is often um, accompanied with this is like, well, if I don't get justice for myself, you, do you see all the things that they're saying to me? Do you see how they're speaking to me? I must say something back because if I don't, then no one will. You see, the idea is, is that if we don't rip justice out of the hands of someone else and get it for ourselves, if we do not demand ourselves that our rights be recognized, then no one ever will. This is not what the Scripture is saying. The scripture is not saying that, oh no, you just forego justice when someone harms you or does evil to you or pain is caused in your life. It just, justice just doesn't occur. It's just forgotten. That's not what this is saying at all. What it is saying is that in the midst of the knowledge 
that you often go above and beyond in the pursuit of justice by taking off someone's head when they took your proverbial eye, right? In the knowledge that that's the way that we normally react, that when we are wronged, right, that the example of Jesus is the most commendable before God, that no deceit was found on his mouth, that no retaliation in his lips, that he, that he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted justice to be gained, not through his own actions, but through the one who judges justly. Because it seems like we have a problem judging justly, right? The scales are always weighted in our advantage. And so every time we rip justice out of the hands of God, right, we imbalance the scales. But Jesus didn't forego justice. He just said, God, justice is yours in this matter. Well, yeah, but that's a big thing because Jesus was like being killed and stuff. Yeah, I hardly think, right, that Jesus sees the injustice that has been done to you and is like, yeah, I'm okay with you getting justice for yourself. Go ahead. I'm sure the scales will be balanced very fairly. I know in my own life that the, that the scales are never balanced fairly. It's never eye for an eye when it comes to, you know, like, exercising my right for justice or any of my rights. It's always more rights for me, less for you. I mean, I mean, think of it this way. Like, are things balanced in your life? <laughs> I mean, how many of you, like, I mean, I've, okay, I'm 38 years old. I've been out of high school for 20 years now. I still don't like some people in, for who they were in high school. Or I still think of people as they were in high school, I should say. Right? Because you couldn't possibly have changed in 20 years. Am I the same person that I was in high school? Heck no. Right? And neither are they. But in my mind, right? You're definitely that person still. Right? I'm not, but you're definitely that person still. Right? That, that scale is always whoop, whoop. See, we, 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 we normally, like all the time, place value judgments on, on people. People. You know the person that you interact with on Facebook is a person? You know they've got like a name and a family? And they have, um, they have insecurities and fears and doubts? And they stay up at night worrying about things? And they, they, they don't know like what's going what's gonna to happen next in their lives? And they... And maybe they're just looking for a little 
a little hope, like a little encouragement, like a little support, maybe just a little bit of love, maybe just a sliver of it, right? But then we see something that they post, and all of a sudden they're a horrible person. And they, they are, they could not be more worse. Someone better tell them. We place value judgments on people from, uh, based on the family that they come from or the town they grew up in or where they live or what language that they speak. The scales of justice always seem so extremely weighted in our direction. And so what Jesus says here is that the Jesus ethic of life is maybe, instead of weighing them so far in our direction that they bottom out, is maybe, just for a moment, we weigh the scales so deeply in someone else's direction that it actually appears like we're letting them take advantage of us. Like we would let them strike us again if they striked us once. Like when they demanded that we walk one mile with them, that we were content, even happy, and to make a decision to walk two. Admittedly, while not being a political message, this is the most un-American idea ever. It is the most un-American idea ever. And I have to ask myself the question of like, why is the Jesus ethic when it comes to something like this so difficult for me? Why does the idea of laying down my rights as Jesus modeled, why is it so difficult? Maybe it's because For 38 years, I have been bowing to a king and a kingdom that I don't belong in. Because there certainly is something about what Jesus says that is so radically different You see, I wonder sometimes if it's not, if one of the points that Jesus is making here is that the manner in which you and I suffer at the hands of other people matters. The manner in which you suffer matters. Like, you can suffer really well. Especially when the suffering is unjust. Because of what someone has done to you. The pain that's been caused in your life. You can also suffer really bad.
probably one of the things that I hear most often when it comes to a scripture like this is, and what's like, what the difficulty is, is like, you see, I don't know if I can believe that because it just is like Christians are so weak. They're spineless. They don't ever stand up for themselves. They don't, they don't ever like exercise their rights. I understand. No one likes to be seen as weak. No one wants to even consider that um, that you may be asked by your king to forgo a right in order to communicate a bigger message. But I, I just wonder about this. You see, the idea that, oh, Christians are just weak and spineless and they don't stick up for themselves and I, I, don't, I can't follow a Jesus like that and whatever. See, I don't see Jesus as weak at all. Um, I'm not weak. I follow Jesus. I am not weak. It is not weak to have power and choose not to use it in order to communicate a more profound truth or message. Jesus wasn't weak because he was encouraging his followers to turn the other cheek or to go two miles when they wanted you to go one. Jesus had the authority to call down 12 legions of angels. You tell me if that's weak. Jesus had all of the authority of heaven at his fingertips and at his disposal. It's not that he was weak because he had no power. It's that he chose to not exercise his power, his right, his authority, so that he could create a new narrative about life. See, I tend to believe that it is more weak of me to fall victim to the whim of every carnal desire that I have to lash out whenever I am wronged. Like I have absolutely no, like I am, I am powerless against the, the flesh in me to, to lash out and be like, well, you can't tell me what to do and I'm not doing that and I'll say what I want when I'll say it because I have freedom to say this and I have freedom to do this, right? Like, There is incredible heavenly strength in the act of restraint in order to exemplify the example of Jesus who did not retaliate, 
who made no threats, and who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I'm going to pray for us as the band comes back up this morning. Heavenly Father, we are certainly mired in a life that allows us every permission to, um, to exercise, even demand, our rights. Our right to do this, our right to do that, our freedom from this, our freedom from that. Lord, while we are incredibly grateful for the rights that this country affords to us, we are also keenly aware and reminded this morning by Your Word and through Your Spirit that our kingdom is not of this earth. That as our King, You may, as You modeled, require us to lay down that which we are entitled to so that we may exemplify a gentleness, a forbearance, a kindness that can only be found in heaven. Lord, let it be so that we would that we would allow the example of Jesus to permeate our relationships, our conversations, our very presence. In Jesus' name, amen.